Welcome to Offkey, a Membrane Labs podcast about the music industry for the industry novice. I'm your host, Talia Seidman-Wright. This season of Offkey will be taking a turn down a new path, moving on from the who question towards the how-to. Our hope is that this season will act as a music industry 101, providing accessible information for industry newcomers like myself, who are interested in building an understanding of how to earn money and achieve success as a creator in Canada's music industry. Join me as I learn about the ins and outs of the music industry from the perspective of two key players in the creation of music, the songwriter and the recording artist. Through research and conversations with music professionals, I'll explore how these creators make money and who and what they should be aware of as they build careers in the ever-evolving music business landscape. As we follow the songwriter's path throughout this season, we've learned about their rights and the various players on their team. This week, we're moving on to the next essential component of building a career in the music industry, getting paid when your music is played. Thinking about how a music creator gets paid for the use of their work brings us back to the concept of the copyright. Copyright is created from the moment an original piece of work, whether it's a painting, novel, or song, or any other intellectual property, is created. As we've discussed, in a song, there is a bundle of copyrights made up of two distinct parts the copyright in a composition, held by songwriters and music publishers, and the copyright in a sound recording, held by master rights holders such as the recording artist or label. When a song first comes into existence, the songwriter or songwriters control and own the copyright over that song. However, they can choose to assign their copyright to other players who then may take on ownership and capitalize on the songwriter's copyright. For example, as we discussed in the episode on publishing deals, when a songwriter signs with a publisher, they assign the copyright of their composition to the publishing company, who then licenses the composition to be used in TV and films, or for a recording artist's new album, and splits the profit with the songwriter according to the split laid out in the contract. In order for a songwriter to collect royalties, they assign their rights to a collection society who then administers and represents the rights of songwriters to collect royalties on the use of those compositions. To start, let's review what the primary income generating rights are for songwriters that these societies represent. The performing right and the reproduction or mechanical right. The performing right is the right to perform a song in public. For example, as background music in a restaurant or bar, live in a concert, on the radio or on TV. This right generates public performance royalties for songwriters when they authorize the use of their songs to be performed in public. The reproduction right or mechanical right is the right to authorize the reproduction of their work in CDs, records, and digital media. Mike McCarty from SOCAN explained more about the differences between performing and mechanical rights and why they're important to songwriters. Basically, there's two copyrights in a recording. There's the, there's the copyright of the recording, in other words, the, uh, the performance that's been captured. Um, one of our colleagues, uh, a guy named uh, uh, Jeff Price, his favorite example is Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You. Yeah. Okay, so Dolly Parton wrote that song by herself, and she recorded it initially by herself. Uh, Whitney Houston also recorded it. Uh, that's a people call a cover. They, Whitney Houston covered yeah. the song, and she released that as well. So, in, in Whitney Houston's recording, there's two copyrights. There's the, the the performance of Whitney Houston, which has been fixed or recorded on tape or digitally, if it if you will, and Sony Records, her record company, owns that um, that recording. And that recording has its own performance right. Uh, the song, I Will Always Love You, written by Dolly Parton, is what Whitney Houston was singing 
that has its own copyright, and that's the, what we deal with. We deal with the copyright of the song, and it has its own performing right. So the other rights associated with that, uh, the basic right, the main basic other right is the reproduction right, which is the right to have your song reproduced. And initially, in the old days, that meant on sheet music. Then as technology evolved, it meant on a recording. And, um, and actually, the very first use of technology in, in uh, disruption of music with technology was disrupting the music publishing business when it went from sheet music to automatic piano rolls. That's where the mechanical. Yeah, and that's and so what happened was that what music publishers whose job was to sign a songwriter and put and literally publish sheet music. Yeah. Uh, because here's how the, here's how the culture was in those days. There was no no electricity, no radio, no records, and so typically a, a modern family had a parlor or we would call a living room or family room now, and they had a piano, and every family had at least one person that knew how to play the piano and read music, and after dinner. They would sit around, and the person would play music, and the family would sing songs, yeah. and they would sing <laughs> popular songs that were that became popular. It, so this is before radio and everything. So how they become popular? Generally out of New York, generally from Broadway, yeah. right? So, so a, a music publisher would uh, would have somebody sitting in the in the window at Macy's playing the piano trying to popularize or plug their latest Broadway song and you'd be shopping at Macy's and you'd stop and listen to it. Oh, I like that song. I remember seeing that in the play last week. And you buy the sheet music, you take it home, you put it in front of the, the you know, your, uh, your son or daughter that plays the piano and they would play the song and people would sing it. That was the music, that was the music business and that was the music publishing business. And then along came robot pianos. <laughs> Right? Totally. Yeah. Mechanical piano players, which, which were operated by a wind-up, uh, you wound up a spring mm -hmm. and, you, and you threaded in a, paper, a roll of paper that had a punch, punch holes in it. And as the paper uh, unwound, it would play different notes on the piano based on the holes on the, on the, on the, on the piano roll. Yeah. And so the music publishing community had, had a problem. And the same problem the record companies had when Napster came along, and that was, hey, these people are using our music and making money off of it. We should be paid. And um, uh, of course, the piano roll companies uh, disagreed, and there was a, uh, you know years of lawsuits and and uh, new legislation, etc. And then when it all settled down, the uh, they all agreed that yes, this new mechanical device is using your your music, so we should pay you a royalty and get a license, and we'll call that that royalty or that license a mechanical license, a license to reproduce your song mechanically. That term has survived the, for the last hundred years and is still used to represent the, the concept of a reproduction right uh, in, 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 in a song in a recording. Yeah. And I don't like the term. I like to use the re term reproduction right because the term mechanical roots yeah. <laughs> it in the past yeah. and, and also makes it harder to understand how the reproducing a digital file is actually using the reproduction right. Yeah. 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 And, and and so going back to the basic question, so and everybody who writes a song, they have the basic their copyright has these basic fundamental elements to it, performing right and the reproduction right. To collect royalties from these rights, every country has their own system of collections. In Canada, the key organization for collecting public performance royalties is the Society of Composers, Authors, and Music Publishers of Canada, or SOCAN. While SOCAN is now branching out into collecting mechanical royalties after absorbing the organization SOJAC, 
For publishers and self-publishing songwriters, the key collections organization for mechanical royalties is the Canadian Musical Reproduction Rights Agency, or CMRRA. First, let's learn more about the performance rights side from SOCAN. I had the pleasure of speaking with Mike McCarty and Holly Fagan-Lacoste from SOCAN to learn more about what the organization does, how to register, and how songwriters make money. One of the things I learned over my career is that almost nobody wants to pay for music. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, and, and, and it's, as anybody who's sort of witnessed the digital revolution saw, um, you know, music feels like it's free to people very often. And because Especially this generation. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's on the radio or, or YouTube, what, YouTube whatever. or whatever. And it, it may feel free, but it's not free. And, and so our job is to make sure that the underlying business infrastructure pays up, basically. And, and, uh, and, and so that's an important thing about an organization like SOCAN is that we basically we aggregate everybody's rights. You know, so uh, it, you as an individual would absolutely find it completely impossible to get attention from any of these organizations that we uh, license. Even though you may have the legal rights to stand on, trying to get their attention is, uh, you have to have the clout of pool of, of people's rights uh, and we have you know, so we have you know basically anybody in Canada who writes music um, is a member of SOCAN and and all the music publishers uh, so those are our stakeholders and um, so we're able to go like Holly's able to go to Facebook and say oh we represent you know Drake the weekend Alessia Cara Sean Mendez and they go oh we have to deal with you then right. <coughs> if she wasn't able to say that they would basically not even take her call or her email. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Our whole entire business model is contingent on our members' trust. Yeah. Like, if our members don't trust us for this, there's lots of rights in music, but for this slice of rights, yeah. for us to deal with all the broadcast companies and all, like, you know, the Amazons and Googles of the world, like, the fact that we have exclusivity in Canada, it's different in the States, yeah. it's different in other territories, but the fact that we can go in and say, we have the blanket license, you you really need to speak with us. Like our members basically have that one piece off their, you know, list of things to do to contact the world of companies that are communicating music to us in yeah. Canada. And, you know, I mean, we reciprocate too with other societies like ours in other parts of the world. Right. So that's why we can say we administer all music under copyright. Yeah. yeah totally. And can you speak about, like, how you would register? So you, you, you sign up. It's a few basic things. You'll get a contract. Um, and you can uh, sign it and scan it or print it and scan it, sign it and scan it, or you can attach your PDF signature uh, and send it back. Um, you can even print it and sign it and do an iPhone photo of it. If it's clear, we'll accept that. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then you're a member. And, um, Does it and, cost anything? Uh, no, no, it doesn't cost anything. And uh, it's a member-owned organization. So you, as a member, you own SOCAN. Uh, we're not not-for-profit, member-owned organization. And and so the way it works is that um, uh, our board is all members, uh, nine songwriters and nine nine writers, con consisting of songwriters and screen composers who write for film and TV, and nine music publishers. So 18 people, and they represent um, all genres, pretty much uh, all areas of the country both languages, uh, we're a bilingual organization, our board meetings are, are, are bilingual, we have simultaneous translation in them. Uh, so we feel like we have, and, and actually our board now is uh, virtually even uh, gender parity. And so we feel like that it's a very, very 
fair, broad representation of the interests of, of the members. And members are writers and publishers. And um, uh, the way it works business-wise is that all the money we collect from the licenses um, is paid out as royalties except for our overhead. So there's no profit margin. So we just deduct what it costs to do the job and then all the rest gets paid out as royalties. And we're one of the most one of the most efficient organizations in the world, like like ours. So it's one of the lowest cost organizations uh, in the world. Um, even though we're a small market, uh, we've been pretty lucky. to Have good, great leadership over the years and great management, and we, uh, it works pretty well. And um, uh, and as as and as after you join, you know, there's other um, advantages. You can get um, information from our website and from our socials. Um, we have uh, programs that help nurture the uh, st people starting out. Um, we have the SOCAN Foundation, which is very much involved in helping people get grants to uh, to uh, uh, travel to showcases or mm -hmm. travel for co-writes and uh, various other ways to create music. Um, SOCAN itself, we have um, uh, an A&R department, which are people who are skilled in identifying new talent, and they know how to help advise people, and they know how, know how to help create programs that, um, that mean something to people. We'll show up at uh, various music in industry events, like Canadian Music Week, let's say, um, where we have a program called Cooking Beats, where we get one of our famous beat makers, or two of our famous beat makers, who will be on stage with their laptops hooked up to giant screens. It's kind of like the motif of a cooking show, but instead of <laughs> instead of cameras in the ceiling looking down on the frying pan, we've got the the, the laptop the, on the TV, and they're showing they they're showing your their their FL Studios or Logic yeah. program, and talking about how they did this and how they made this kick drum sound or why they put this sound here and how they did it. And it's very very popular and very wow. uh, educational. Because one of the hardest things to learn. It's very difficult to learn how to produce records by listening to them. Yeah. And almost the only way to really learn is by watching people do it. So this is where we're helping, we're showing, uh, real pros are showing you how they did it, right? So things like that, and we have songwriting camps for, for more established writers uh, and up-and-coming, right. sort of established up-and-coming writers, if that's not an oxymoron. Um, <laughs> and what we're trying to do in a broad sense is, is foster collaboration and, and networking in our, in our uh, creator community. So that's what the song camps do. Um, we, we're sitting here at SoCan's headquarters in Toronto in our in our uh, little studio called the Sound Lounge, yeah. and um, this is intended to again foster collaboration. We have uh, members can book it out, and usually they book it out to write with co-write with other people. And uh, we have a similar uh, facility in our Vancouver office and in our LA office, and soon in our Montreal office. And um, we have a program we run called Song Camp Mondays, which so far is one Monday a month. Uh, eventually, it'll be hopefully every Monday. Uh, and that is where it's, in, again, intended to foster collaboration. So it's for people who have never collaborated or who want to find new collaborators. And you sign up, and we kind of arrange you in, a, in a, almost a blind date manner based on listening to the music and, and getting a feel for what your, your specialty might be. Right. And we put together teams of three. And uh, they'll, they'll come in and they'll write all day in our in our studio, and um, we get uh, they get a pizza lunch provided by the Songwriters Association of Canada, and they're just next door. We uh, okay. we provide office space to them and some other we we call our friends and family wing of other important industry associations, um, and uh, that Song Camp Mondays has been very successful in, c in creating lasting uh, writing relationships amongst people, That's and awesome. the writing rooms themselves we find one of the funny we didn't never thought it in advance but it's 
people, the writer, pe the members who use it often tell us that it's a safe space to write and to meet mm. somebody new, mm. right? So if somebody's, if you never met them before and you have an apartment, they have an apartment, you don't yeah. want to go to their apartment, you don't want no, to come to yours. No, that's so true. It's corporate, <clears throat> it's... Yeah. 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 Totally. I never thought of that. Yeah. yeah. So all of the things we do in the creative side are to, at a l grassroots level, kind of feed the ecosystem. If, if, if you imagine the music ecosystem as a pond, you know, there's sunshine, there's water, there's, uh, you know, uh, bulrushes, there's tadpoles and frogs and that. We like to think that we're the sunshine. And, we, and when we spend money and, and expertise on these creative endeavors, it's to add more sunshine to the pond, to make a healthier pond for everybody, for the, for the creators, for the music publishers, for the external music industry, like record labels, agents, uh, uh, very much concert uh, Thing. So yeah. if we manage to play an early role in somebody's career where we're going to say we connect them with somebody, then they become collaborators, mm -hmm. and then they become successful, right. and they make music that's on Spotify, and, and lots of people listen to it, and now they're getting SoCan royalties, and now they have a live career, and they show up at Massey Hall to play, well, they, the reason why they were able to show up at Massey Hall to play was because partly because of what we did for them maybe three years before that. Yeah. And that's what we see a, a, a responsibility in a, in a role we can play in the ecosystem. Alongside supporting songwriters' creative development, Silken's primary role is to collect royalties. And in order to do so, they need data. Mike McCarty and Holly Fagan Lacoste explained how usage data is collected by Silken and how it's evolving in the digital age. So we distribute all our money, gets distributed on the basis of data, right? Yeah. And so the data we need from a concert is the playlists. And traditionally we rely on, on the, um, typically the member or their management or maybe their publisher uh, to provide that. Um, increasingly we're going to be looking at technology. We, uh, yeah. we have a, a partnership with a, a, a company in Calgary called Mazooka, M-U-Z-O-O-K-A. -O and they have a, uh, their app is a platform for everybody involved in the live uh, ecosystem. So the artist or management, the promoter, the venue, the agent. And it's basically uh, to share digital assets. Um, certainly the, the, the tour dates and anything about that, but also like maybe photos, videos, bios, audio. Upload your set list yeah. is one of them? Well, that's one of the, that's yeah. one of the we, ha that's we have. So that's awesome. Because they have all that information that we would need, uh, we have a uh, technology uh, connection to them called an API, which enables, uh, if you're a Mazooka, a Mazooka user, mm -hmm. you can uh, look up your, your catalog on, on the SOCAN database, configure a set list, and send mm -hmm. it, it and all the other gig information to us through the Mazooka app, and we get it in a pristine format that we trust and we know, and we can actually distribute the money faster if you're using that platform. Right. So, and we're now distributing uh, on hundreds of concerts that, that come through Mizuka platform. Uh, some point in the, in the future, we, may, we dream of a situation where through that kind of technology or scraping Facebook or uh, Twitter and uh, Setlist FM, that we can tell you what you played uh, and all you have to do is confirm it, right? right. And, and uh, because you don't have to tell us what, you, what, what song was played on radio, why should you have to tell us what, what song was performed live? So we're heading to a world where we're going to be gathering that data for you and you're not going to have to give it to us. Because one of our biggest problems is, oddly enough, is trying to get the set list from people. Yeah. And at the end of the year, we have to have my staff 
get devote a huge part of their time to emailing, uh, DMing, and phoning people and saying, "Hey, we have money sitting here for you. All we need is your set list." Yeah. So we have. So uh, we're trying to make it easier, and, yeah. and we realize that that's the way we have to do it. And eventually, we make it seamless so that you won't even have to do anything. Hopefully, mm -hmm. and because um, that's what it's like on radio. We have um, uh, computers listening to radio stations that identify the recordings that are being played. Uh, we, uh, you know, when the Spotify's or the, when the Apples of the world send us. A ginormous data files. data files of the usage yeah. of the of the songs, and our secret sauce is, and this is something that people never think of until we talk about it. Um, that's the they, those all those companies and tell us the recording that was played. Mm. That doesn't tell us the song necessarily, yeah. because like for instance, we have over four thousand songs in our database called Hold On that we pay <laughs> royalties to. Right. Four thousand unique songs, oh. all with the same title. Wow. Right. So if um, if somebody tells us, oh, we, uh, we, there was 10,000 streams of Hold On by Drake, that's enough information for us to figure out that yeah. it's Drake's Hold On. But um, the data is not always that good. Mm. And um, maybe there's multiple versions of Drake's Hold On that uh, have different writers on them, right? And yeah. so <laughs> as you start to get peel back the layers, and, and it's actually incredibly complex. So really one of our secret sauces is making sure that, that when, you're, when we're told what the recording and the performer is, that we know what song it is and who all the stakeholders in the song are. We, 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 we pay and we know what percentage they have and we know how to pay them because we have their bank account information. And, and why do we have that? Because they're members. Right. And, uh, or their publisher's a member, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so that's, that's how we, we, uh, we keep it straight. And then keeping it straight is incre increasingly complex. We are now, uh, uh, our COO, Jeff King, told us the other day that we're now um, handling 200 million transactions a day we're, trying to, we're working with in this organization. So it's billions and billions and billions of performances a year we're tracking. And actually, we like to think that we're one of the leading organizations of our kind in the world in that area because we were fortunate that we, in the early days of monitoring radio with computers, um, SOCAN was one of the early adopters of that technology and it forced us to figure out how to handle way more data than we were. And so we, that, that we, we developed techniques and bought technology to do that, that when the digital revolution came along, we went, oh, we know how to do this, we've seen that game before. And some of our peers around the world really weren't ready, and um, and yeah. so we're we're pretty proud of that fact that we and we're right now we're in the tail end of introducing a whole new suite of technologies that have been in the works for years that are have again put us in the forefront of being able to handle the tsunami of data that's yeah. involved in the digital wow. world. And I remember, like at the beginning, when we got these digital tariffs, which was when I began here. I guess it was 2013. Like, I would contact an American service and say, hey, you know, this is what you have to pay, and uh, please send all your usage data. And what I came to realize from a couple of them, and these were like mid-range services, I'm not saying like the biggest data tech of the world, they weren't even here yet. Um, they would say, yeah, like, do you really need that? Like, can't you just take my money? And I'm like, no, because we're not for profit, and if I take your money and we don't know where it's supposed to go, right? how are we accountable <laughs> to anybody, right? And they said, like, all right, you know, and, and one of them I remember telling me, saying, just so you know, you're the first society that's asked me for this. And I thought, like, that's impossible. Like, you're licensed by other societies, yeah. and I'm not putting anyone down, maybe because they were a mid-range, it wasn't as important yeah. to them, or the money wasn't big enough that they could get enough out the door and prove something to their members, or whatever it was. Yeah. But I was like, you know what? At that point, I kind of made a vow to myself, like, 
no matter who you are, how big, how small, if you're a little web radio guy or you're literally Amazon, let's treat everyone equally. Let's get all of their data because cumulatively that creates so much information. You never know until you get people's data and revenue figures actually how successful they are. Yeah. If we have the power to identify this stuff while nobody else is, then we can attract new members. Mm -hmm. so we can yeah. say, hey, like we got this. We, we know what's happening behind the scenes on this platform. Has anyone else done that for you? Maybe, maybe not, but we're going to do that for you, right? Once data is collected, there are various royalty rates for different types of usage of a song. These tariffs are set by the Copyright Board of Canada and change according to negotiations with organizations like SOCAN and the Songwriters Association of Canada. I spoke with Mike and Holly about royalty rates for different types of usage and what SOCAN is advocating for to better support Canadian music in the future. Well, we think it's important that, that you know, that we are accurate whether you have 10 streams or 10 million streams. Absolutely. Uh, the 10 person who has the 10 streams just ha has a right to their money as much as the person with mm -hmm. 10 million streams. So that's really one of the fundamental policies and philosophies of the organization. Um, that, you know, that everybody's equal that way. And, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, we, we um, uh, if we were a for-profit organization, we probably wouldn't care about the things that seemed expensive to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so... Uh, you know, we we always have to have a balance between cost and 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 and, uh, and granularity, but we, we always push the envelope to be as granular as we possibly can manage right. to be, right? Yeah. And uh, and you know, Holly talking about foreign companies too. It's important to know that when you join SoCan, you know, um, we can collect all around the world for you, not not directly, but through our affiliates around the world. So every SoCan in the world, uh, we have a relationship with, and their job is to collect in their territory for for us, for their, their local members, and for, and for our members, and we do the same for them. So, you know, if you're German, if you're American, English, Australian, uh, uh, we're collecting in Canada for your music. Right. And sending it back to your local society. Yeah. Um, just bringing up collections, can you speak a bit about, like, what that looks like in different revenue streams? Like, say, if you, if your music is streamed in, like, a restaurant, or if it's, like, you know, someone buys a record. How do those differ in, like, amount of royalty sure. that you would receive? You know, it's funny. People have a hard time understanding the intellectual property side of copyright and that its value is almost always contextual, mm -hmm. right? There is a different rate applied to background music suppliers, right. like for restaurants and retail, um, than if a restaurant would be licensed, um, like, directly. So, like, a restaurant that has a... Uh, in tandem license or a SoCan resound license in place um, would pay let's say based on square footage okay. and then if they're going you know if your restaurant is going through a music supplier mm -hmm. the music supplier is actually paying on behalf of the restaurant or right. the apps that are supplying music um, would be paying on kind of behalf and they would be paying based on a percentage that the restaurant was paying for that background music service right. okay. so it's nice because like you know, these background music suppliers do aggregate restaurants. You know, they're, they're out there pitching mm -hmm. and pitching the value of music, actually. Mm -hmm. So I cheer on music suppliers um, any chance they get, um, especially when they're doing things properly. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, but I mean, uh, the fact that, that music is in a commercial setting, um, th that's always taken into account. Mm -hmm. Like, 
for sure, um, music being streamed online is um, is a communication to the public, but the public performance of music in a business establishment yeah. has a specific rate, a more elevated rate, actually. Right. Yeah, okay. for because sure. Because they're using the music to help drive their business. Yeah. You're playing music off of your phone or device. Mm -hmm. You're playing CDs. Um, you know, you're whatever the source of music. Mm -hmm. Um, we're not overly concerned of the source, unless it's a background music player, we license them. But we don't really get involved in what your source is. We're making sure that the public performance of it, yeah. right? Like that CD that you bought to listen to at home on your earphones yeah. with your buddies or alone, whatever. Now that it's on speakers, being heard by the public that are enjoying a delicious meal, that value is being captured, right. yeah. and we yeah. we assign like a rate, and yeah. a fee, and um, you're in effect you in effect become a broadcaster, right. pretty much, and you're and it's part of your business, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And we make sure even to capture the screens in businesses, like the screens that are playing like the Galaxy channels, yeah. the Stingray channels, and all that. Yeah. Um, we have a pay audio tariff actually in our media tariffs that captures that. So we're we're really making sure that like I'm just like my my eyes and ears are always open like. Where's music? How's it being communicated? Yeah. Where's it being heard? Is this the public? Like, is this oh, new? Yeah. Like, cause there's, it's, music is, it's everywhere. <laughs> it really That's is. Yeah. 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 So, so uh, um, again, it's on the performing rights side, yeah. um, it's only when the record is performed. So if they right. bought some vinyl, let's say, there's no performance right associated with that. Yeah. It's only the mechanical or reproduction, yeah. right? Um, the, uh, it's interesting because people say, well, how much does a, uh, one play on radio or okay so um, that might be somewhere around it's close to a dollar let's say 75 80 cents something like that depend it depends uh, I'll tell you uh, there's no, actually no fixed rate let me start there okay. most of these things <clears throat> there's no fixed rate it's mostly a pool of money and we get a percentage of the pool of money so okay. we have a we have a percentage of all the gross revenue at, of radio television we get a percentage of all the gross revenue at the streaming services and so that creates a pool of money. And then um, we have to take the data, the usage data, and divide the usage data into the pool of money. So very, very simplistically, let's say, uh, it, these aren't the right numbers, but to, for illustration purposes, let's say we collect a million dollars from all of Canadian radio, for instance. And let's say uh, in one year, and in that year there was a million plays of songs all across all those stations. Well then simplistically, each play would be worth a dollar. Right. Right. Uh, and, and and so uh, what we do is we say, okay, this year because there's a million plays and a million dollars, a play is worth a dollar. But if there was two million dollars, a play would be worth twice that, right? Or right. if it was, you know, two million plays and a million, you know, see, it's, so it's like an aggregate. The, yeah, the actual payout per performance yeah. varies according to the size of the pool and the number of, of performances that go into the pool. Right. Uh, but so simplistically, if, if there's a million, million dollars and a million plays and each play is worth a dollar and you got 10 plays, then we pay you $10. Right. That's how it works across most of the revenue streams. Okay. And uh, so and on Canadian radio, it happens to be that um, approximately 75, 80 cents, but let's round it up to a dollar for illustration purposes. Mm -hmm. So if, if um, the computer data that we get says that your song was played 10,000 times, across Canadian radio, then we're going to pay you $10,000. And, um, and interestingly, in the streaming world, people complain about the, the rates in streaming, and I don't want to get too deeply into that, yeah. but well, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but if you want to get into don't that, we could. Yeah. The, 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 the difference is it's apples and oranges, because one play in a radio station reaches multiple people. 
typically in a commercial, a large commercial station in a large Canadian uh, urban area, that could be tens, th tens of thousands of people or a hundred thousand people. Thousands, right. yeah. So, so if you have, if you're earning that one dollar from that one play, it's actually let's call it very simplistically a hundred thousand impressions that one play makes. Right, hundred thousand people are listening. That's a hundred thousand impressions. So what was the? It was a dollar per play, or performance, or per spin is the industry term, mm -hmm. but one one hundred thousandth of a dollar per impression. Right. So you go over to streaming, and streaming, of course, is a one-on-one -on -one thing. Every stream is an impression, mm -hmm. basically, because usually one person's listening. Mm -hmm. So what you get paid per stream or per impression, somewhere around one one hundred thousandth of a dollar. Now, it's not exactly the same, but it's not orders of magnitude different either, right? So that's the thing that people miss. And the thing is that people go, well, I had a, I had a, a half a million streams. Okay, that might be five plays on Canadian radio. Right. So, and it's all about the optics because you're, it's apples to oranges. And on, if you had five plays or, or spins on Canadian radio, you wouldn't consider yourself a success. You consider that to be a, basically a failure. So, but again, you, but when you hear, I had half a million streams, mm -hmm. you think, wow, I mean, that's a big success. Why am I only getting, this amount you of know, money, yeah. 50 cents or whatever, or $10 or whatever it is? And the answer is, it's still not very big. Right. It always was, to make a lot of money on radio, you needed a lot of impressions. You needed a lot of airplay. Yeah. To make a lot of money in streaming, you need a lot of, of impressions or a lot of streams. Right. Yeah. If you have a big worldwide hit pop song, you'll have tens of millions of plays Everywhere. on radio, which equals billions of impressions, and you'll earn millions of dollars. Yeah. That same hit, giant worldwide hit record will probably have billions of streams and earn millions of dollars from streaming. Mm. Right. Okay. But I mean, revenue? Source-wise, when you look at radio, just as he explained, like, I used to sell advertising for radio in a past life. Like, you're looking at how many people are tuning in at that given moment, yeah. and 30 seconds is worth four or $500 to that radio station. Selling ads on streaming services are obviously not going to be... It's all scaled. Yeah. So yeah. when we collect license fees from a radio station, it's clearly based on a percentage of ads. That's where their, their money's yeah. coming from. For sure, for sure, like when you look at digital streaming services, YouTube is ad supported. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of, it's, it's still not the same, you know, one-to-one, one-to-many communication. Mm -hmm. But I mean, digital streaming, like audio streaming services, more often than not are subscriber-based. Right. So one subscriber could be paying $10 a month, but could be consuming a thousand streams a month. Like the, yeah. you know, the pool of money is going to stay the same, but the amount of streaming could be exponential right. or not at all. Like someone could stream a hundred songs a month, you know, like I think right. consumption is, is limited, but like, like you can only, you know, listen to so much music, but there's heavy listeners and there's light listeners, yeah. right? So it's a different business model. I think it's cool because it's super consistent. That $10 is coming in every month and mm -hmm. that person has access to so much music, either independently produced yeah. music or music from labels and, and ma major major record labels and publishers. So I think um, there's so many pros and, and, and I guess some people could see it as a, a con to make less money from a, an individual stream, but those streams weren't there before, right. which is like, it's just um, it's a new business model and it's a new um, 
legal way because like there was a a gray time there where people were just kind of downloading stuff and streaming stuff you know without anybody paying anyone so I think what's really exciting is that um, you know, the more we find the uh, like technology advances, n- new apps, new stuff comes out that uses music. It's it's just going to be more and more found money, and yeah. and people are going to come up with new business models, and we're going to license them, and and radio lives on. I mean, and radio, I hear like, have you been cheating on me with Spotify? Like, I heard an ad the other day, but uh, like, they're working, they're working together. They're like, it's okay, find our you know ninety four seven playlist on Spotify, right? Like, at the end of the day. People were afraid of the of the of the mechanical piano, right? Yeah, it's all just adapting. I mean, I, there's just yeah. more happening, um, more places for creators to put their music. Right. Um, as long as we continue to do our job and our due diligence, like we will will find those extra revenue sources yeah. and and work with uh, companies like you work for mm-hmm. to to brainstorm and and forward think. And yeah. I mean, it's it's a positive ecosystem you know it's right. it's exciting I think do you, do you think like Canada's legal framework um, in terms of like the copyright board and like negotiating royalties is it is it lagging behind right now or like do you feel like it's adapting along with this technological innovation well it's the laws are always slow to adapt the, yeah, so the, the, the legislation the copyright Canadian Copyright Act um, does need some work yeah um, the copyright board we've been very vocal about the fact that it's a, plays an important role in, in establishing royalty rates in Canada, but it's been slow to, to make decisions, and so that's been an issue. We think that actually right now one of the biggest problems or, or threats looming in, in the future for Canadian creators, music creators, is uh, our data is showing an alarming drop-off in the consumption of Canadian music in the mm. digital space versus conventional media. Because, you know, for one thing, we have Canadian content regulations in radio, and they don't exist in the digital space. It's not regulated like by the CRTC, yeah, yeah, the 20% yeah. CanCon. Okay. And I don't know, um, well, we actually have some ideas what the answers are. First of all, the problem isn't the problem that that, radio, that we had with radio in this, uh, which created the Canadian content regulations in the first place. The problem we had generations ago was Canadian radio refused to devote any of their shelf space to Canadian music. Mm. Um, and it was all part of uh, the, the Canadian culture at the time was, as a country, we lacked self-confidence. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so that, in, in that kind of environment, Canadian radio just, uh, there was a, Canadian music had a brand at Canadian radio that it sucked. Mm-hmm. If you're Canadian, you sucked. That's what radio thought. <laughs> yeah. And so it was hard to break out of that. And, and the only way to break out of that was to move to the U.S. like Joni Mitchell or, or right. you know, Gordon Lightfoot and Neil Young yeah. and, and have success there. And, ha- and then if you ha- your record's validated by America, then Canadian Radio would play it. Mm. And so no domestic industry existed. And it couldn't, yeah. it couldn't start because of this vicious circle. So um, uh, they created the Canadian content regulation to say you had to devote some of your shelf space, which is your playlist, mm-hmm. your airtime, to Canadian music. So fast forward to the digital space, there's not really a shelf space problem. There's not an availability problem. Mm-hmm. Anybody can get their music on any of these services through TuneCore, CD Baby, yeah. DistroKid, whatever. Um, so the Canadian music is available. We think that it's a discoverability problem. Mm-hmm. And that the discovery mechanisms, where the engines, the algorithms, etc., cetera, um, uh, play this thing, whatever the, the ecosystem of discoverability is, is probably unintentionally biased against Canadian music. It's actually probably biased against 
small market cultures. Yeah. It's you know I'm not going to say it's a bias in favor of American culture. It's not I don't think an intentional thing. It's basically that's where the big market is. Exactly. That's where the most of the data comes from. And you know I, I remember when the first time I bought a book on Amazon years ago, and and you saw the um, uh, the recommendation. Well, mm -hmm. those who bought this also bought that. Yeah. That's when I first started thinking about this. I yeah. I said, well, what's the denominator? Yeah. You know. <laughs> Um, the machine all of Amazon's clients? If so, Canadians are screwed because 98% yeah, of, their, of their clients would be American, right? right. Totally. So they, yeah. they wouldn't care about, the, the, you know, that's so, using that type of thinking, it's obvious that these things are probably biased against Canadian culture. And so we think that the government's role, and we've been saying this in Ottawa very loudly, um, is to make sure that those discovery mechanisms are at the very least not biased against Canadians and ideally biased slightly in favor of Canadian culture. Mm -hmm. right. and, um, and so whether that happens through um, pressuring these companies or legislation, that remains to be seen. Yeah. But we think that has to happen because we're telling you the data uh, is, is when you pull out the super Canadian superstars, mm -hmm. there's virtually statistically no Canadian music being uh, consumed in those, in those services. Now, I'm not, that's an exaggeration. It's not no Canadian music, but it's a minor blip. So you know, if you, again, you look at Canadian radio; it's thirty percent, thirty-five percent, of whatever is Canadian music. Right. Um, it's alarmingly low in those in those right. spaces. Yeah. Uh, so the future of our culture in the arts, I think, is really at stake. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. SOCAN is Canada's Performance Rights Organization, or PRO, and they collect primarily for songwriters' performance rights. But what about reproduction rights? While SOCAN is now venturing into reproduction rights, the main organization in Canada that covers these rights for publishers and self-publishing songwriters is CMRRA. I had the pleasure of speaking with Rebecca Webster from CMRRA about what the agency does and how they negotiate royalty rates on the publishing side. Uh, my name is Rebecca Webster. I'm the Director of Industry Relations and Communications at CMRA, and CMRA stands for Canadian Musical Reproduction Rights Agency, uh, which is quite a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, CMRA is the home of songs. Um, we're based in downtown Toronto. We've been around since 1975. And um, like our name says, we are um, focused on the musical reproduction right. Um, and that tends to confuse a lot of people, but essentially um, when a song composition is um, created, uh, once it's reproduced onto some kind of platform, whether that be physical or digital, that automatically generates a royalty, and that royalty automatically generates a payment. So we we collect and distribute those payments. Okay. So we are a publisher-focused organization, and it's important to note that because um, then you have to figure out what you are in the world. Um, if you're a songwriter, um, you are actually automatically your own publisher if you do not have a publishing deal in place. So um, that it's, it's sort of like if you're running your own business, um, automatically you would be a sole proprietor. Right. It's the same thing with songwriters. You're automatically your own, your own publisher the moment you compose a song. Mm -hmm. um, but we work with 95% of the market. Um, we're the market leader for reproduction rights in Canada. That doesn't mean that we just work with Canadians. We work with anyone who is 
um, streaming a song in Canada Correct. whose song is um, played on commercial radio. And then we have other lines of business which also deal with audiovisual. So uh, that those lines of business deal with YouTube mm -hmm. and Facebook, um, and kind of in a new area of user-generated content and right. the way songs are used in that. Um, we have a team of legal people here. Um, I don't know if legal people is exactly <laughs> the best term to call them. We have a really hard-hitting team who have negotiated the tariffs and rates for um, these songs and fought for the value of this right. um, since the day the online platform started. Um, they've also, um, they've, you know, they've worked with the Copyright Board of Canada. They've also licensed things directly because that's possible in Canada. Um, but they're always looking for the ways songs enhance um, someone else's business. Right. Um, they believe very strongly, and we believe very strongly, that um, songs are valuable. Yeah. And what's different about CMRA is that um, we are an agency. It's in our name. Um, that means that the song rights are not um, assigned to us. Or mm -hmm. s sorry, we don't. We don't represent them. We're they're just. Um, we work on your behalf. So if you consider that um, from the start, that means that we don't actually get paid until you get paid. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it makes us work a little harder, I think. Right. <laughs> um, we have no joining fee or anything okay. like that. Um, it's free. Yeah. And the only time that you ever pay us is when you get paid. And that is just a percentage. And it's for the administration because of all the work that we're yeah. doing and how just so I'm aware and maybe someone who's trying to understand like all the different organizations in yep. Canada so how does CMRA fit um, sort of next to SOCAN yep. yeah so SOCAN um, is the permitted monopoly for the performance rights of a song mm -hmm. um, they if you consider this that a song um, has two sides uh, this is all on the composition side in North America, there are three performance uh, rights organizations, ASCAP, BMI, and SOCAN. Mm -hmm. If you're a songwriter, you can be part of any of them. Right. Um, you just have to choose one. Okay. Yeah. Um, and similarly, um, CMRA is usually the second thing that people think of if, say, say, they're in Canada and they're trying to figure out how they need to um, get paid for their music. Um, we can sign up songwriters directly um, because you are, as I mentioned before, your own publisher immediately. Um, if, but we also like we work with you know the the majors, so uh, Sony, Universal, Cobalt, right. Peer Music, all of these huge publishing companies that that work around the world. Um, okay. Publishing, this is something really important. Um, music publishing, they do well. We administer mm. some of what they do they provide extra services. So they they might um, bring extra value to a song by setting you up with a songwriting partner. Yeah. And maybe that will propel your career in a different way because right. they already have a name or they already have different um, ways to get your songs to a different performing artist who needs a song. Or maybe um, that song is gonna land in a movie yeah. um, and that's gonna generate you revenue in some other way. Um, the other thing is uh, Syncs, which mm -hmm. publisher, music publishers set up all the time. They have relationships with music publishers, or music supervisors, I should say, and they're pitching these things all the time. Um, 
you do have to make sure you're a priority within that system, yeah. like anything in the music yeah. industry. But um, that's why we say that we work with music publishers because um, we are always trying to work in their best interest. Um, and we often, I mentioned our legal team before, um, we often collectively, because we have such a big market share, are able to negotiate better and more fair rates right. um, because we have the mass of the market behind mm -hmm. us and that gives any kind of business that we're talking to um, some sense of like a real negotiation that's right. going on, that we are representing all the voices here. Right. A lot of the time we look at what is in the best interest of our clients mm -hmm. And in Canada, we don't, we are not mandated to go and set those tariffs through the copyright board. Oh, okay. So you, we can, and this is one of the benefits of CMRA, because we have good relationships in the industry, mm -hmm. we can go directly to um, Spotify or wow. Apple or Facebook or YouTube and we negotiate directly and oh. avoid the copyright board. Right now there's a bit of a backlog at the copyright board. Yeah. In fact, um, we're going through a tariff proceeding that started in 2012. And as I'm talking to you right now, just for context, wow. it's 2020. So um, that uh, means that when that ruling goes forward, it, it will retroactively be paid to the songwriters. But until then, we're sort of in limbo. Yeah. So you can see why our legal team has decided in many cases yeah. that they're gonna directly negotiate. Right, wow, Yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah, no, it's um, it's fascinating. And and that's it's like when, when people say, like, how can an agency like CMRA be innovative? Um, that's one of the ways how we can be innovative is knowing yeah. how to navigate a very complicated legal system that maybe doesn't look exactly like the US, mm -hmm. so we can see where we can benefit in Canada and maybe right. be the leaders in establishing new um, benchmarks. Um, yeah. And we can say, you know, if, if, say, Spotify were to offer us a certain rate to, when we're renegotiating, because some of these terms do come up every couple of years, um, we can say to our colleagues in the U.S. and in the U.K. and in Latin America, we can say, what did they offer you? Right. Um, and then we can say, you know, what you know, what does this mean for Canada? Is this good for Canada? Yeah. In terms of valuing the mechanical re reproduction royalty versus the performance royalty, um, you know, what, because it has to add up to 100%, that friction between the two royalties is important. Right. Um, if the value just gets diluted, yeah. um, then it's, uh, it, it's not going to benefit songwriters. And totally. At the end of the day, CMRA was created because of songs. Mm -hmm. it, it would be nothing yeah. without songs. <laughs> so it's in our best interest because we are out there trying to establish these rates and make them the highest possible. And um, But while, while looking at what's going on in the market, mm -hmm. um, you'll notice that um, in Canada, if you're on an in Instagram story, yeah. you'll see that um, you know Instagram music is not available in your territory. Yeah. But... Um, it was because what we were being pitched was not a very good rate. Right. But then we had we kind of succumbed to global pressure because these this Facebook music and Instagram music service was um, available in other territories. Mm -hmm. um, it we we talked to our 
Canadian Publishing Committee, mm -hmm. which actually, it, although it's not a board because we're now owned by a company in the U.S. called Sound Exchange, right? Um, they do advise us and um, on the direction of our negotiations and, and what they see in the market versus what they need as publishers. Right. And um, so we did end up in July 2019 uh, putting in place a mm -hmm. um, licensing deal for Facebook and Instagram. Wow. So that okay. those services will be launching um, this month cool. in Canada, which is exciting. Yeah. Um, I like talking about these things because I think that it applies when, when once you start understanding where CMRA fits in your daily life, yeah. you start understanding more about us, you start understanding more about songwriting, how people are getting paid, you start understanding music publishing. Yeah. Rebecca also explained how CMRA collects usage data and how these royalties are then paid out to members. So because we're the ones who established all the tariffs and, and yeah. rates for the online distribution or online services, I should say, mm -hmm. um, and that was really like a shift in what was going on in the mechanical reproduction of songs. Okay. Um, because before, you know, we used to think about the physical reproduction of a song yeah. onto a product. So like vinyl, CD, cassette, USB, whatever it was, whatever physical product was happening, um, that was the mechanical reproduction. But then it became that you were reproducing these songs into a digital yeah. space. So because we are the ones who established in Canada all of those rates, we if you haven't signed up yet, we go retroactively back to day one. Wow. And that is a definite benefit. The money never disappears because we haven't actually asked them for it yet. Right. It goes back to the process of how we collect and distribute payments yeah. because Spotify still has the money. Right. So right. as long as we put your song into the system, we still have all of that recording data mm -hmm. um, retroactive and okay. it's, it's called kind of a waterfall effect. Right. So. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay, awesome. It's exciting. Yeah. It's, it's actually it's like, like really good news money. for those people <laughs> who are like stressed out that they haven't actually yeah. heard about CMRA yet and they haven't actually signed up with us it you can still get your money yeah <laughs> so um, when you sign up for CMRA you you put your musical works songs mm -hmm. into our system you fill out a spreadsheet you send it in we put it in our system so you figure out your musical splits so say you and I wrote a song mm -hmm. And we agree that it's 50-50 ownership. So we write down those shares into, into the system here. When um, Joe covers um, that song and maybe records it and it gets played on the radio, then we get that data from the commercial radio right. um, stations and that gets matched back up to the songs in our system. Yeah. Matched to the yeah. composition. And it's really important to know that there's only one composition ever. Mm -hmm but there can be millions of recordings. Yeah. Um, and because we get 100% of the data from all of the online streaming services that operate in Canada, and um, we get the commercial radio logs as well, mm -hmm. um, we are able to provide a, a really high match rate to um, make sure that those details are compensated. Right, yeah. And the songs are getting paid out. We pay out four times a year. Okay. Um, and uh, the way performance rights are administered is very different oh, okay. than mechanical reproduction. 
And I didn't understand at first when I started working here yeah. what that meant. Um, but essentially, um, the way we work is that um, I talked to you about how the recording data comes in, mm -hmm. and then the um, it matches back to the, to the song yeah. composition. Yeah. Once those things are matched, then we send out an invoice to the services. Oh, okay. Within 30 days, they pay us. Wow. And then we pay four times a year. Um, sometimes if there's a special payment, we mm -hmm. add to the four times a year, but minimum four times a year. Um, you don't get paid if you, we do have a minimum threshold. So if you're if you've earned under $15, yeah. then you then we just let it accumulate. Um, but that's kind of how our system works. Our 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 um, fee administration mm -hmm. fee, which is purposely kept as low as possible, um, is only taken off as your payment is coming right to you so it's at the end of the conversation yeah. it's not like you know drake's not getting a market share payment because he's the top in the company or right. something like that yeah it's it's literally the percentage that you own of that song okay. um, gets paid back to right. you right in dealing with such massive amounts of data there are bound to be mistakes or things that are missed. To address this, CMRA has started a really helpful initiative called the Unclaimed Works Portal. Rebecca explained more about what this is and why it's important to songwriters or publishers as a tool to ensure they get paid for every song. So we launched the Unclaimed Works Portal this month, so February 2019, okay. so it's been around um, a year now. Um, it is an ability, so it's, it's part of our efforts to become even more transparent mm -hmm. um, than before. You might even say that we're translucent <laughs> because if you are, um, anyone can can take a look at it. Mm -hmm. There's a, I'll, I'll tell you about the process. So you you essentially like uh, apply to um, to get access to the Unclaimed Works portal. Mm -hmm. You have to prove that you are a songwriter. So you have to. Um, put in your IPI number, which IT IPI means interested party identifier. It's, it's just a term that um, when you're a songwriter, your PRO, your um, performance, performance rights, rights. organization, yeah. <laughs> so your um, performance rights organization will issue you um, IPI number. This identifies you as a songwriter. Mm -hmm. It's automatically issued. Um, so we we make sure that you um, you put that number in. We then on our side verify that you are actually who you, you say you are. Once we've been through that, you get access to our portal. Okay. This portal um, is it's a self serve portal. If you're already a client of CMRA, um, you will get more advanced options to. Um, search it so there'll be even more search fields if you're not you'll get a simple search um, you can put in a variation of things you could put in if you've got the simple search it's like song title um, maybe your ISRC code mm -hmm. um, you there, so basically you would put in a search term then you see what comes up. Now, when I was doing this demo for a client in California, um, mm -hmm. they're a huge music publisher. Um, they're called Wixen. Okay. Um, we used the example of one of their biggest songs that they own the copyright for, um, which is Don't Stop Believin' by oh, wow. Journey. Yeah. <laughs> in the Unclaimed Works portal, 
34 pages of, um, of things came up. Wow. Now, you would think that this shows that maybe, you know, things aren't matching well. But in the case of that song, um, things were coming up like, don't stop believing in brackets as performed by the cast of Glee. Right. Um, sometimes in the algorithm in the computing world, there are things that kind of kick you out of the system. And this is one of the things. If there are exceptions in the title, mm-hmm. um, then then that could be a reason that it ended up there. Right. Or it could just be that only 20% is unclaimed okay. of that song. Or maybe, like, I saw one in there that was, was 2% was available. But it was 2% of a huge song. So That's significant. Yeah. <laughs> the portal allows you to... Um, s- search it for um, you can't see dollar value but you can see kind of tiers of value okay. so you can kind of turn the jar upside down whatever you way, way you want to look at it and kind of go okay well is this one of my songs oh it looks like it is why does it say unknown publisher let me link it to a publisher and okay. let me put my name in there now if you put your name in there and you link it to you as a publisher, mm-hmm. then um, we that then it automatically gets comes to us inside and we verify it. If it's not, it gets thrown out. Okay. But um, it's just a really interesting tool to um, make sure everything is is there. Um, ASAP Rocky is a really good example of why something might end up there too because yeah. it's got dollar signs in his name. Right. There's all sorts of things. Some, something might be in dispute that mm-hmm. comes up, and it, it will actually show you this one's in dispute. Right. So um, it just could be, you know, it could be a radio station has put your song title in wrong. Like right. maybe it misses an R or something. You know, like right. maybe there's an action. Yeah. You know, like it you could, should be getting that It could be in the data that's coming from the radio station right. or the data that's coming from Spotify. Um, yeah. That that's why this tool exists. It's for the exceptions, like the the exceptions that are really far down the line. Right. And um, they use a term around here called long tail. Okay. It means sort of like all of the rest. Like if you think of a tail, like there's all of these tiny little things and exceptions and bumps and strange yeah. things. This is a tool that gets you all the way to the end of the long tail. Like it right. it, it it allows you to really dig deep. Getting paid for the songs you write is absolutely crucial, and organizations like SOCAN and CMRA are here for that very purpose. In such a highly competitive industry, it's important for songwriters to register with these organizations, to earn money, and also to take advantage of the other resources and educational workshops they offer to support your professional development as a music creator. To close, here are some final thoughts on royalty collections and advice for any songwriter starting out from Rebecca Webster from CMRA and Mike McCarty and Holly Fagan-Lacoste from SOCAN. The other thing I think you need to consider, and this is just something as, as someone who just joined this side of the music industry, um, I, I think you really need to um, know that you can always negotiate things. Um, so you can not negotiate the rates with us, but you could negotiate... Um, uh, you know, fencing off Canada for your to work with Canadian organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is sometimes important because a lot of um, the Canadian collective organizations are going to the government and are av- doing 
government advocacy on behalf of copyright owners, so that's on behalf of creators. And the more people that we have joining our organizations, the more weight we hold um, totally. with government organizations. Yeah. So, um, you know, joining Actor Racks, joining CMRA, um, it's, it's all really important um, mm -hmm. on the advocacy side of things. Um, yeah. Because our, our legal teams need to have that support. And, totally. and the voice is only as strong as the collective that is behind it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if, if you step back and think of it as intellectual property, that, that is, seems more serious, but totally. you've created something. It's valuable from the inherent moment that you create it. Um, here's an example. Um, there's the Canadian TV show Schitt's Creek. I love Schitt's Creek. <laughs> right. So you know the song A Little Bit Alexis? Mm -hmm. Now you think of it as like a joke song. Yeah. But... It's getting streamed all the time. Yeah. People are playing it. They're putting it on their playlists. Mm -hmm. The people who wrote that song are making money off of it. It in it has a value. Totally. The other day, she performed it live on TV with Kelly Clarkson, and so so obviously that's you know a performance mm -hmm. thing, but it's it's still showing that like there doesn't have to be this dramatic seriousness to music no. to make it valuable it, yeah. it like any type of song can be a value one of our mm -hmm. publishing clients owns the song for um the the theme song for paw patrol oh wow <laughs> it has generated yeah millions yeah, it's I can imagine. It, you know you can imagine you know how like that that, that yeah. tv show is everywhere yeah um but it's not just the TV property, it's the song itself. Mm -hmm. It exists in the TV property, but it will also exist on all the other platforms as well. Totally. Um, so I think you can be quite hopeful yeah. about where songs are going, about where composition is going, about how as new technology emerges and new, new services emerge, that there are teams of people out there seeing that it's adding value to other people's businesses and yeah. that they could they should get some of that money back yeah. and back to the creators. Totally. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, you know, traditionally, uh, people have understood that when, you, when the light bulb goes on your head, so I want to make money in music, what do you do first? Well, traditionally, it's been, I've got to join SOCAN, right? Because, uh, you know, it doesn't, matter, it doesn't matter what happens to your music, if you haven't joined SOCAN, you're not going to make any money off it, right? right. So. And, and also, like, you know, I only worked with producers in the music world in the, you know, somewhere in the 90s. I registered with SOCAN, and part of it was to keep track of my stuff. Part of it was to um, make sure that the producer and I got the business stuff out of the way before there was even a glimpse of money yeah. on the horizon, yeah. right? Like, so many bands and, like, relationships just fall apart because people, yeah. you know, it, like, stuff goes viral or pops off, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah, um, I wrote most of this, so yeah. I should get X, Y, Z percentage. So, yeah, it's not it's not creating copyright, you know, registering your works with SoCan, but it's it's helping to protect yourself. It's helping to protect your relationships with the people yeah. you make music with. Yeah, if you have co-writers, it crystallizes, yeah. it forces you to crystallize Absolutely. the business relationship. Oh, what is the split in the song, right? And yeah. you get that out of the way, yeah. and then you focus on what you love to do, which, you know, because, I mean, I, 
spoke with someone the other day and <laughs> I don't know, like the, the grudges people hold like years later about not figuring that stuff out is like really saddening. And it, and it, it doesn't have to be that way because you get this stuff out of the way, you get it all organized and that business piece is just off the table and then you, yeah. you, you know, do what you like totally. to do. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, if you, if you join SoCan and set it up so that the infrastructure is there to collect for you when something happens to your music and then the next question is, well, how do you make something happen for your music, right? And, um, and I, I, I really, really believe that um, we're in the era of the greatest era ever to be making music. It's, I think we're gonna, it's the greatest era of prosperity um, notwithstanding people's individual uh, uh, streaming earnings <laughs> yeah. uh, when, they're, when they're still struggling. Um, but uh, when you have success, you'll make more money than ever. Um, and it's the easiest era ever to make music. Nobody tells you you can, yeah. can't make music. You know, Seriously. it used to be that you, you in, in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s, you really couldn't make a record without permission from a of a record label and money from a record label to win a studio. And literally, in the, in the, in the 60s, the record labels owned the studios. So the, the gatekeepers were there. They said you, they, they determined whether you lived or not. Right? And then they could shelf you after That's bringing right. you into the studio and putting, you know, yeah. then right. basically they owned that and, and it could just be put on the shelf because it wasn't the right time for that or someone made a decision on yeah. their behalf. And now you make music on your laptop, on your phone. Uh, you work with people from all over the world because you just send files back and yeah. forth and so many amazing apps yeah. that help people do that. And but you have to be great. Yeah. And it's, it, it's really simple. You've got to be great. Mm -hmm. and, and you've got to focus 99% of your time and energy on making great music, however you do that. Find collaborators or whatever. And most people, you know, their instinct is, oh, I made it, so it's great. And, and there's, that, there's that phase in your life, in your career, where you realize, no, it's not necessarily so. And you either have to develop the standard in your own head or have, have people around you, collaborators or friends yeah. or family. There's that one person who tells you when it is and isn't great. Yeah. And I think that um, <laughs> TID, talent, intelligence, and drive. Yeah. Mm. Everybody who has success has a, their own unique combination of those three items. And it's different ratios for different people. But the talent alone, it's, it, 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 you know, there's a lot of people out there who sort of pass the bar in the talent level they have. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes intelligence and drive, and the use of your intelligence and, and the use of your drive to harness your talent. Mm -hmm. and, and the intelligence part, I think a lot of it comes with, with not being afraid of scheming and intellectualizing your career. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, there's this romantic notion that it just comes. I just yeah. make the music and it comes, and that's absolutely no. false. Yeah. Um, if I can dispel one notion in people's minds, that's absolutely false. In spite of the interviews you'll read or see with some of your heroes who deny they ever thought about having a hit or ever strategized their career, um, having a hit record is, is one of the most difficult things in human endeavors possible. And I like to equate it to another human endeavor that's considered to be one of the most difficult things that humanity has ever done, and that is, say, climb Mount Everest, right? Do you know that every year, more people reach the top of Mount Everest than people reach the top of the Billboard Hot 100? And, and, uh, wow. and, um, uh, and, you n and nobody ever got to the top of Mount Everest by accident. There's a lot of people that uh, that die on the way up. No, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I've heard that There's a lot of bodies literally <laughs> on the way up, and it's the same thing with the music industry. Exactly. Too. Uh, literally and figuratively, unfortunately. Yeah. But but no, what I'm trying to say is that they, they never. You didn't wake up and find yourself at the top of Mount Everest. Yeah. You didn't dream about it and find yourself. You worked towards it, mm -hmm. and you worked and you sacrificed, right? So you have to you have to identify where you want to be, 
and you have to re relentlessly drive yourself towards that goal. You have to understand how the game works. You have to play the game. Mm -hmm. You can game the game. You don't have to like surrender to the game, mm -hmm. but you have to understand there is a game and you have to play it. And it involves imagery, branding, yeah. uh, building an audience, connecting with people, um, writing music with, uh, that, that, that's, uh, that's catchy, writing music that connects with people, that has emotion, uh, structuring your music, mm. uh, structuring your career, structuring everything you do. Working social media these days is a huge part of it. Yeah. If, you do, if you do all those things, you have a chance of having a, a career in, in, in music, and then it becomes your, but you're competing with everybody in the world, so you have to be great. But guess what? You always had to be great. Thank you so much to Mike McCarty and Holly Fagan-Lacoste from SOCAN and Rebecca Webster from CMRA for their contributions to this episode. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Offkey. I've linked to the show notes for this episode in the description, so check those out for a summary of key points, links, and resources on the topics we discussed during this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. They really help us to improve and create the best content possible for our listeners. If you have any topics that you would like me to cover, please email me at offkey@membran.net or send me a message at either Membran Labs or Talia SW on Instagram. This episode of Offkey is written and produced by me, Talia Seidman-Wright, with writing and research assistance from Dino Cialotti. Thank you to Torben Witterman for creating the music used in our intro, outro, and transitions. Offkey is a member of Membran Entertainment Canada, aka Membran Labs, a music services company that provides distribution and label services for Canadian artists and labels. We're also exploring ways, like with this podcast, to help all musical artists be better informed, know their rights, and ensure they get all of the money that is rightfully owed to them.